You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Numbering around 15,000 people in the 18th century, the population of the Juma people of Brazil was ravaged by the rubber tappers, loggers, and miners who wanted their ancestral land. Only 100 remained in the 1940s, and a massacre in 1964 left only six, including Aruka Juma. His three children were all girls, who married into the neighboring Uwuyuwowo community. After the death of his brother-in-law in 1999, Aruka became the last remaining Juma male, and the last fluent speaker of their language. And in March 2021, he died of COVID-19. My name's Moxie, and this is Your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode turned into a two-parter on me when I sat down to start writing it. The topic, The Last of Their Kind, was voted on by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, where folks like Sebastian, Catherine, Rachel, and Michael already get perks like ad-free early episodes. And based on feedback from the recent poll, the brain candy level will now get the chance to submit a fact or question for the show as often as every five episodes. But then I couldn't decide if I wanted to do endlings, which is the term for the last of something, endling people or endling animals, or maybe some of each. When the question was posed over in the Brainiac break room, which you can reach at yourbrainonfacts.com slash social, along with our subreddit, your fellow Brainiacs were like the little girl in the old El Paso commercial, or if you prefer, the road to El Dorado. Both. 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 Both is good. So this week we're doing people, and next week we're doing animals, and I will do my best to stop it being a complete downer. The wiki list of the last people to X left me spoiled for choice. I completely forgot that I was going to talk more about Yahi, the last of the Ishii of modern California, whose story was mentioned in episode 149, The Founding Mothers of Sci-Fi, by way of the father of Ursula Le Guin. There are many arts and skills that are down to their endling, some of whom actually accept the inevitable march of time. History and stories are passed from generation to generation, but the role of storyteller might not be. Take, for instance, a Wong Batil, a traditional form of musical storytelling in the Malaysian state of Perlis. The name Awang Batil also refers to the storyteller themselves, who accompanies his stories by drumming on a batil a type of brass bowl normally holding water. You can almost picture someone tipping out the last of the water from the pot after the evening meal and turning it over to use it as a drum as they tell stories around a fire. The Awang Batil employ other instruments as well, though, such as the violin or the oboe-like serrani. And there's a visual component as well. The storytellers employ two masks, 
the Hulu Belong and the Walk Nujum, which both cover the face in a style like a Southeast Asian Phantom of the Opera, the symmetrical mask, to help the storyteller create different characters. And I'll tell you what, I wish I could employ masks for the audiobook I'm narrating. I am not strong in character voices. However, if you need a new phone menu or explainer video, go to moxielabouche.com to order your VO today. A Wong Batil storytelling isn't just an after-dinner diversion of half an hour. It's often included in wedding celebrations and other festivities. A performance can go until dawn, pick up where it left off the next evening, and go till dawn again. And again. And again, if need be. It would be like a special mini-series event. Do they still do those on network TV? I don't, you know, have TV anymore. Once common around Malaysia, Awang Batil and similar oral traditions have slowly been disappearing, even in the rural areas where TV and internet have been slower to reach. Currently, there is only one living practitioner of Awang Batil, Romli Mahmud, who's in his 50s. When Mahmud dies, Awang Batil will die with him. And that's what he wants. Well, wants might be the wrong word here. It's what he sees as inevitable. Mahmud was taught by his father, but he doesn't intend to teach anyone else. The art cannot survive. Life has changed. It's just a matter of time before my instruments and masks are taken to a museum. The traditional tales are too old and too long to connect with modern audiences, and thus the tradition will likely die with him. Quick side trip. Have you ever seen the movie The King of Masks? It is an amazing story about an old Chinese man who does quick-change mask performances, but he has no son to pass it on to. So he decides to buy a little boy from the black market, that scene is less grim than it sounds, I promise, who turns out to be a little girl who's already been sold six other times. But she refuses to leave the old man after he finds out she's not a boy. I don't endorse Amazon, but it is on Prime right now and it is absolutely worth watching. Or maybe we could have a watch party. Shout it out on social media and let me know what you thought. Facebook and Instagram, your brain on facts, Twitter, brain on facts pod. Another storytelling tradition that is dying out is the Syrian tradition of Hakawati. Like a Wong Batil, Hakawati is part performance and part history, with the performer, also called a Hakawati, using props, accents, and even audience participation to tell stories from Arabic history. Sounds like a lot of buskers and street performers I know. And yes, I do know a lot of buskers and street performers from back in my days as a burlesque dancer. But unlike my busker buddies who go from place to place, event to event, the Hakawati always operates out of the same coffee house or cafe, and the audience comes to him. Knowing where and when to find the Hakawati is key, since Hakawati stories are serial in nature. If you want to find out how the story you heard today ends, you'll need to come back to the same cafe tomorrow. This is a common feature of Arabic epic poetry, which you already knew, even if you don't know you know it. Ever heard of Scheherazade and the Thousand and One Arabian Nights? Same, same. The Hakawati once ruled the coffee houses of the Middle East. But the last performing Hakawati is Abu Shadi in Syria. He's been holding court since 1990 at An Nafura, a lively Damascus cafe in the shadow of the Umayyad Mosque, the very cafe in which Shadi first heard a Hakawati as a child with his father. Shadi's performances were more than just oration. 
He would hold the crowd spellbound with exaggerated acting. His bread and butter were battle scenes, which he punctuated with shouts and slashes of a short sword, a sword which would get banged down on the table of people who talked during the performance. I know a lot of stand-up comics and other performers who are wishing they could do that right now. Hakawadi need to keep the audience coming back every single night, because when I say epic, I mean epic. A single story can take a year to tell in one-hour nightly chapters. Shadi and his audience were of a certain age, most of them in their 60s, who had been coming to see Hakawadi performances since childhood. He believed that one reason for the decline of Hakawadi was that the storyteller best connects with audiences who are regulars, people who respond well to him and vice versa. Just as evolving tastes and technologies whittled away Mahmoud's audience, changing demographics in Damascus saw fewer and fewer regulars dropping in to hear Abu Shadi. He'd been encouraging his son to follow in his footsteps, but he was realistic about the young man wanting to do it in the days of satellite TV and the internet. No one is going to do it after me, he said. The income is too poor. But he kept the tradition alive until he passed away in 2014. We all wear many hats in life, and Junichi Kawakami is no exception. University professor, museum director, engineer, and the last authentic example of Japan's legendary ninjas. Kawakami started practicing ninjutsu as a child, and eventually rose up the ranks to be the 21st head of the five-century-old Ban ninja clan. He also runs the Ninja Museum of Igaryu, which collects and preserves the secret ninja scrolls, including recipes for poisons. Recipes of dubious veracity, since it's not like we can test them out. That's why a lot of history of ninjutsu is as cloudy as the air after a quick escape smoke bomb. Wait, were those real? Let's stop for a quick history lesson for those of us who hear the word ninja and picture turtles, snake eyes, scorpion, and Chris Farley's second-to-last starring role. Japanese folklore states that the ninja descended from a demon who was half man and half crow. However, it's more likely that the ninja slowly evolved as an opposing force to their upper-class contemporaries, the samurai, in early feudal Japan. Most sources indicate that the skills that became ninjutsu, the art of stealth, began to develop between 600 and 900 CE. In 1162, a fallen samurai decided not to commit ritual suicide, as was the custom of the time, but rather spend his retirement forming the country's first ninja school, the Togakure Ryu. And I apologize to the entire nation of Japan and anyone else who speaks Japanese for my pronunciations. Ninja culture peaked between the 1330s and 1600. Those times were defined by constant wars, so ninja skills were a plus for survival. Most ninja were not disgraced samurais or Batman-type nobility, but seemingly ordinary peasants and farmers who learned the ninja art as a way to protect themselves and their property. Women also became ninja, or konoichi, and infiltrated enemy strongholds in the guise of dancers, concubines, or servants, where they could carry out assassinations or gather information. Starting in 1603, Japan's stable and peaceful Edo period made ninja skills much less important. You need fewer warriors when you're having fewer wars. The practice began dying out, though some families, like Kawakami's, 
held on tight to their ninja heritage. Kawakami's childhood training involved a diverse set of skills including chemistry, weather, and psychology, in addition to the rigorous physical training. When he turned 19, Kawakami became a full-fledged master and gained access to those secret scrolls and tools. But he's decided not to pass those secrets on. Ninjas, quote, just don't fit in the modern day. In the age of civil wars or during the Edo period, ninjas' abilities to spy and kill or mix medicine may have been useful. But now we have guns and the internet and much better medicines. So the art of ninjutsu has no place in the modern age. Okay, wait, you're saying. There are other people teaching and learning ninjutsu right now. Can we really call Kawakami the last? According to Japan Times, Kawakami has something most other ninja claimants do not, an earnest combination of scholarship and humility. He's a ninja, but he's quiet about it, appropriately enough. If there are two practitioners of a particular skill, and one has a chain of schools and a line of branded DVDs, and the other guy just has a museum, I'm inclined to believe the second guy is the authentic article. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Ring Lardner Jr., the son of a famous journalist and humorist, wrote many words as a journalist and scriptwriter, but he's most famous for the words someone else said to him. Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And the words he refused to say back. Lardner was the last surviving member of the Hollywood Ten, ten motion picture producers, directors, and writers who appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee in October of 1947, but refused to play ball with the terrorism that was McCarthyism. All ten refused to answer questions regarding possible communist affiliations, spent time in prison for contempt of Congress, and were blacklisted by the Hollywood studios. And how. Each of them was on their way to lasting fame. Each is now all but unheard of. But you're going to hear them now, because it's the least they deserve. Alva Bessie, Herbert Bieberman, Lester Cole, 
Edward Dimitrik, John Howard Lawson, Albert Maltz, Samuel Ornitz, Adrian Scott, Dalton Trumbo, and Ring Lardner. Lardner was born in 1915, educated at Princeton University, became a reporter for the New York Daily Mirror, then moved to Hollywood where he worked as a publicist and script doctor on films like the original A Star is Born in 1937. Lardner began writing his own material, including Woman of the Year, which won the 1942 Oscar for Best Screenplay. An active member of the Screenwriters and Authors Guild, Lardner wrote about two movies a year, becoming the highest-paid scriptwriter in the biz, earning the equivalent of about $23,000 from 20th Century Fox every week. He was also involved in organizing anti-fascist demonstrations, which did not sit well with his bosses. Lardner held strong left-wing views and helped fundraise for groups like the Popular Front in Spain during their civil war. After World War II, the House Un-American Activities Committee, often just called HUAC, began an investigation into the Hollywood motion picture industry. In September 47, HUAC interviewed 41 people working in Hollywood. These people attended voluntarily and became known as friendly witnesses. During their interviews, they named several people who were accused of holding left-wing views. Lardner appeared before HUAC on the 30th of October of 1947, but he and the other nine refused to answer any questions. He wouldn't even confirm he was a member of the Screenwriters Guild and flatly refused to name any members of the American Communist Party. Lardner had written a statement to present to HUAC. My principal occupation is that of screenwriter. I have contributed to more than a dozen motion pictures, among them Woman of the Year, for which I received an Academy Award. The Cross of Lorraine is about the anti-fascist movement in France during the war. The screen version of Tomorrow the World, about the effects of Nazi education. Cloak and Dagger, about the heroic work of our Office of Strategic Services. And an animated cartoon called The Brotherhood of Man, based on the pamphlet The Races of Mankind and exposing the myth that any inherent differences exist among people of different skin color and geographical origin. My record includes no anti-democratic word or act, no spoken or written expression of anti-Semitism, anti-Negro feeling, or opposition to American democratic principles as I understand them. He had written it, but he wasn't allowed to read it. The Hollywood Ten were each found guilty of contempt of Congress, Lardner was sentenced to 12 months in prison and a fine equivalent to $11,000, and naturally lost his job. No one in Hollywood would touch him, so Lardner and his wife moved to Mexico City, as did some of his contemporaries in ostracization. The families would picnic together on the weekends, which the FBI, who were spying on them in Mexico, believed were cover for communist meetings. Will the nonsense never end? Lardner moved back to the States in 55 and wrote under several pseudonyms before the blacklist was lifted, including a little film you may have heard of, 1970's M.A.S.H., for which he won another Academy Award. His autobiography, I'd Hate Myself in the Morning, a reference to his refusal to name names to save his own skin, was published in 2000, the same year he passed away. Speaking of writers, show of hands if you read Scott O'Dell's 1960 classic, The Island of the Blue Dolphins, when you were a teenager. 
The book tells the story of a 12-year-old girl who is stranded alone for years on an island off the California coast. It won shed loads of awards, including a Newbery Medal, was adapted into a movie, and spawned a sequel comparatively no one has read. But the most interesting thing about it is it's based on a true story. Well, some say based, some say inspired by. I suppose that remains to be seen. Odell called her Karana. Missionaries called her Juana Maria. But the true name of this early 19th century woman has been lost to history, and her story mirrors the experience of many Native Americans in the face of European colonialism. Juana Maria's tribe, called the Nicolinos, lived on St. Nicholas Island, one of California's Channel Islands, for about 10,000 years or so, give or take a month. In the 18-teens, when Juana Maria would have been a young child, a crew of otter hunters, some Russian, some Native Alaskan, sacked the island. The tribe of 300 was reduced to a few dozen in the wake of the attack. By 1835, only about 20 people remained, who were taken off the island by Catholic priests. This, I don't think, was a, hey, we're going to the mainland, do you want to ride kind of situation. They had to go, and they did. All but Juana Maria, now in her 20s, and no one knows for sure why. One story claims she was absent from the group that they were trying to evacuate because she was looking for her missing child. Another story sees her jumping off the boat, thinking that her little brother is now stranded alone on the island. Whatever happened, an approaching storm meant that the ship departed San Nicolas in a hurry and couldn't turn back. Through the years, multiple attempts at locating her failed, until she was found by Captain George Nidiver of the Piores Nada. Sorry also to Spanish speakers. In his memoir, he recounted the moment they discovered Juana, stripping whale blubber. She was of medium height, about 50 years old, but still strong and active. Her face was pleasing as she was continually smiling. Her clothing consisted of but a single garment of skins. She did not flee from the men, but bowed, smiling, and talking happily in a language no one could understand. She couldn't know it then, but she was the last person alive who could speak or understand her mother language. This was in 1853, 18 years after her people left the island. Alone on San Nicolas, she had killed seals and wild ducks for food, and made a hut out of whale bones, though she sometimes also lived in a cave. She sewed, fished, and foraged, living off seal fat. She sang songs and crafted the tools of her life. She'd succeeded handily in living physically, but it's hard to say what impact total isolation had on Juana Maria mentally and emotionally. She was taken to Mission Santa Barbara, where she became a sort of local curiosity, dubbed the Wild Woman, though the Catholic priests renamed her Juana Maria. Newspapers reported on how she was acclimating to life at the Santa Barbara Mission, even noting that she marveled at the horses around the mission and enjoyed coffee and liquor. She even performed songs and dances for those who came to look at her. Though Juana Maria had found human contact again, she only got to enjoy it for seven short weeks. After living in isolation for nearly two decades, her immune system was extremely vulnerable to the pathogens carried by the people on the mainland. Like an ill-fated round of the Oregon Trail, she died of dysentery. A Jesuit priest baptized her on her deathbed, 
which it can safely be assumed was without her consent, since neither could understand the other. Juana Maria's personal effects that she brought with her, including bone needles that she used to make a dress of seabird feathers, were housed in San Francisco prior to the Great San Francisco Earthquake of 1906. You can guess what happened then. Her feather dress also disappeared after being shipped to, of all places, the Vatican. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. We now move to Portland to look at the Shakers. What's a Shaker? Technically, they are the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, a millenarian, non-Trinitarian, restorationist Christian sect. Okay, that got a little too technical. Uh, millenarians are waiting for a big change to come along, like the end of the world. Non-Trinitarians reject the standard Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And restorationist means they believe the church should be like it was in ye olde times. That description might be complex, but life for Shakers is meant to be a simple one. They practiced a celibate and communal lifestyle, strict pacifism, charismatic worship, and gender equality institutionalized in their society in the 1780s. They were initially known as Shaking Quakers because they were an offshoot of the Quaker movement and were known for their ecstatic behavior during worship services. Decades before emancipation and 150 years before female suffrage, Shakers practiced social, gender, and racial equality for all members. In fact, a number of the founding leaders were women, such as Jane Wardley and Mother Anne Lee. The Shakers emigrated from England and settled in revolutionary colonial America, where they became known for their simple living, architecture, technological innovation, surprisingly, good sturdy furniture, and music, like the song Simple Gifts that's playing in the background right now. Their meeting houses were plain white and largely undecorated, but the people inside might be dancing, singing, or speaking in tongues and getting the feeling in apparent convulsions. Unlike the set order of the long, boring Catholic masses of my childhood, can't imagine why I didn't stick with it, Shaker worship services were unstructured, loud, chaotic, and emotional. The movements of natural excitation were converted into choreographed dances and symbolic gestures, which other people living nearby didn't get and gave some side-eye to. The Shakers built more than 20 communities in the United States. They practiced communal living, where all property was shared, and it really seemed to work for them. Men and women lived as brothers and sisters, and were called as much. Their honesty and frugality received high praise from surrounding communities. All Shaker villages ran farms, raising most of their own food with the latest scientific methods in agriculture. Their livestock were fat and healthy, and even their barns were commended for the convenience and efficiency of their design. Their schools were also nothing to be sneered at. Neighboring non-Shaker parents so respected the Shaker's education system, they sent their non-Shaker children there to be educated. Children are an interesting bullet point in the Shaker story. Shakers were celibate. Completely celibate. They didn't even have sex for procreation. Without members producing children, it got kind of tricky to keep up the community's population. They relied heavily on adoption and conversion, and a sexless life makes conversion a tough sell. 
turnover was higher than it is in retail. At its peak, the Shakers numbered about 6,000 believers in 20 communities. The members who did stay saw industrialization bring cheaper consumer goods to market, hurting the skilled craft side of their economy, and many left to find better opportunities. By 1920, there were only 12 Shaker communities. By 1957, for reasons not immediately clear in my research, the Shaker leaders voted to close the Shaker Covenant, the document which all new members need to sign, and locked it away in a safe. This was arguably the death blow to the community, but not an immediate one. The last remaining Shaker community, Sabbath Day Lake Shaker Village, still welcomes sincere converts. If someone wants to become a Shaker, and the Shakers agree, the would-be member can move into the dwelling house. If the novice, as they are called, stays for a week, they sign the Articles of Agreement, which protects the community from being sued for lost wages. After a year, the Shakers will take a vote as to whether or not to let the novice in. But it can take another four years to be granted full Shaker status in sharing the community's finances, administrative duties, and worship decisions. How many Shakers will there be to welcome you? Two. A decade ago, there had been four, but one Shaker brother fell in love with a visiting journalist and left, and in 2017, 89-year-old Sister Frances Carr died. This leaves 64-year-old Brother Arnold Had and 82-year-old Sister June Carpenter. In Sabbath Day Lake, as in other former Shaker villages, neighbors called Friends of the Shakers raise money to preserve their archives and buildings. Many friends even attend Sunday services. But few opt to join the faith, and none stick it out long term. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The patrilineal system of the indigenous Brazilian communities means that Aruka Juma's grandchildren are part of their father's community, not their mother's. But some of those grandkids are breaking with tradition, identifying as both Uruuowo and Juma. We are going to carry on our people's tradition, says 20-year-old Batate. Batate's 18-year-old cousin, Kuambu, has legally incorporated his grandfather's surname into his own and calls himself... Kwayambu Juma Uruuwowo. I am a grandson of a Juma, a son of a Juma. I have the right to have Juma in my name. So maybe Aruka wasn't the last Juma after all. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.